0: Pray with me. God and Father, as we come now to your word, I pray that we might be attentive to it, that you might, um, through the words of Jesus Christ, instruct us, teach us, and meet with us, that you might grow us more and more, follow after him. Be with all of us sinners as we sit beneath your word. Be with me, a sinner, as I preach it. Pray all of these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So, today, as we've been walking through the Sermon on the Mount for the last couple of months, we come to Jesus' discussion of money and possessions. I just have to say up front, I don't think I appreciated it until we started preaching through the Sermon on the Mount just how many challenging topics Jesus manages to tackle in, that, in those three chapters. But that said, this is maybe some especially challenging stuff for us, but I don't know that we always appreciate that fact. Uh, David Foster Wallace, who's this brilliant author and essayist from the 20th century, Um, he was once asked to give a graduation speech at Kenyon College, his alma mater, and he got up and started off his speech with this story. He says, there are two young fish swimming along, and they happen to meet an older fish swimming the other way, who nods at them and says, "'Morning, boys, how's the water?' And the two young fish swim on for a bit, and then eventually one of them looks at the other and goes, "'What the heck is water?' And Wallace goes on to explain the point of this story. It isn't that the fish are silly or ignorant. Rather, in his words, the immediate point is that the most obvious, ubiquitous, important realities are often the ones that are the hardest to see and talk about. I was thinking about this observation as I spent time with our text this morning. We all know that Jesus has some things to say about money, and we all get some sense that they are countercultural. But I suspect that many of us are like those fish, that wealth and possessions and materialism and greed are so ingrained in our culture and in our lives that we struggle to even appreciate that fact. Jesus tells us that we have a money problem, but we're so used to swimming in it that we ask, what is money? Let me try to put it this way. Just consider a few statistics, right? The median per capita income globally, meaning what the person at the 50% mark in the world makes in a year, right, the median per capita income is $2,900, $2,900 in a year. And remember, that's half, half the people in the world are below that. People in America talk a lot about the 1%, right, and decry the 1%ers. But globally, if you make $34,000 in a year at your job, that's the 1%. We Americans spend a lot. We spend more, for example, on shoes and jewelry and watches, about $100 billion a year. We spend more on that than we spend on higher education. 3% of the world's children live in the U.S., but we own 40% of the world's toys. There are more television sets in our country than human beings. There are more shopping malls in America than high schools, or here's my favorite, Think about the stuff you own, right? How much stuff do you actually think you own if you added it all up? All the DVDs and underwear and forks. How, how much stuff, right? Pick a number. According to a professional organizer, the average American family has 300,000 things in their house, right? 300,000 different things. And that's the average, so some of us have more. And I'll be honest, I could multiply those statistics until they blurred together. We are outrageously, fabulously wealthy in this country compared to the rest of the world, compared to the rest of history. And I don't say all of that, interestingly, to make us feel guilty. There's this thing that can happen where those stats get thrown around and it's just this sort of shaming that comes with it, and that's usually not very constructive. As we'll say in a moment, the issue isn't just that we are in an economically prosperous place, and I don't say it because I'm any better off than the rest of you on this topic, right? I am a fish too, swimming in that sea of wealth. But I do say it because the more I think about this text, the more convinced I am that we need to spend a lot of time reflecting on it. Because Jesus actually spends quite a bit of his ministry talking about ministry, and we often avoid those discussions for various reasons. But if anyone needs them, it's us. We can do this weird thing when we think about wealth and money. We assume that the teachings that Jesus has on it are only supposed to apply to someone else. That they're for the people richer than us, right? That, that Warren Buffetts, Donald Trumps of the world, that if they would pay attention to what Jesus had to say, that would be really great. But look, wealth is the water that all of us swim in. If any group of people, anywhere in the world, any time in history should expect Jesus' teachings on money to challenge them, it's going to be us. And so Jesus wants to teach us about our relationship to money and possessions, He wants to teach us about it on several levels in this text, on the level of our hands, what we do with it, on the level of our eyes, how we desire and look at and think about it, and on the level of our hearts, how we serve it, our hands, our eyes, and our hearts. So we're going to look at each of those in turn this morning, but before we do, I want to step back for just a minute, because Jesus' teachings here belong in a context, and before we look at the specific of this text, I want to offer a couple of brief thoughts on how the Bible just kind of views money as a whole, all right? Because I think that's important to us. On the one hand, in scripture, money and wealth are not evil. They are not evil. The Bible is sometimes misquoted this way, but that isn't what it teaches. There are wealthy, praiseworthy people in the Bible. Lydia, who Paul praises and who hosts a house in her home, or Joseph of Arimathea, whose tomb Jesus is buried in. Um, And wealth in scripture is pictured as a blessing of God at times and can be a reward sometimes for wisdom and hard work. Abraham was rich, as was Job. So money itself is not a curse. Having it is not evil. And we need to say this up front because sometimes Christians get this idea in their heads that obedience to Jesus, when it comes to our finances, would mean that every one of us gave away everything to the poor and since we're not doing that, we feel like we've already failed, and there's not a lot of point paying attention to Jesus' teaching. But that isn't God's view. Wealth can be a blessing, and God isn't angry at us for being blessed. However, while money is not evil in Scripture, it is seen as dangerous. It's dangerous. So while Scripture doesn't say that money is the root of evil, as some people misquote it, it does say. In 1 Timothy 6.10, that the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, that some eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Money itself isn't bad, but we can easily fall in love with it, and that can draw us away from Jesus. Indeed, Jesus tells this parable of the sower in Mark 4 where the seed is scattered on different kinds of ground that represents people in different situations and some of it is scattered on ground with weeds and the weeds grow up and choke out the seed and Jesus explains this kind of seed this way. He says, it starts to grow, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desires for things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. This is perhaps why Jesus says in Matthew nineteen twenty four, Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. So money in Scripture, I guess the best thing to compare it to is fire, right? It isn't a bad thing. In fact, fire is a good thing for our survival. We need it to survive, but it is dangerous. You have to be careful with it. And watchful around it. Because if you fail to recognize the danger, everything can burn, right? So it's within that context that Jesus speaks. Not to condemn us for having money, which as we said in America, most of us have a lot of. But to teach us how to live with that money and approach it safely. So let's look at what he wants us to do then as we think about our wealth. The first area Jesus addresses in this text is our hands our hands, what we do with the money that we have. So in verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. Don't spend your time and resources, he says, getting stuff of the earth. And what is that stuff? It's clear from what he says can happen to it, right? That it can decay or be destroyed. It can be stolen by thieves. He's talking about wealth in all its forms, money, possession, investments. And he is saying not to store it up for ourselves. That's actually an important distinction, for ourselves. Like we said, Scripture doesn't view wealth as a bad thing, but it constantly condemns greed. What's the difference, we might ask? It rests on what we view our wealth as being for. So in the world as Jesus sees it, all physical things are ultimately from God, our call is to be good stewards of them. He elsewhere pictures it as God being a master and going away on a trip, and he gives these different servants kind of parts of his estate to take care of, and, um, and, and that's us, right? So we don't have to view it as a bad thing to have that wealth. That's part of God's design. We're called to invest it and use it and even enjoy it appropriately, but we are always meant to act as if it belongs to God, not to us. Wealth leads to greed when we start viewing it and using it primarily to serve our appetites rather than God's kingdom. What Jesus calls us to do then in verse 20 is to store up for yourselves treasures in heaven instead. To store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. How do we do that? There's this rather cryptic parable in Luke 16 Jesus tells about a rich guy who's about to fire his financial manager and so the manager goes and cancels all these people's debts and we don't have time to dig through that whole parable this morning. But Jesus sums up the point of the parable in Luke 16:9. He says, I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. So what matters in eternity is not how much stuff you have, but how much you have blessed the world with your stuff. That's what Jesus has in mind here, that by blessing others with our resources, by being generous, we're actually receiving a blessing deeper and more enduring than something that money could buy. So Jesus is calling us to be generous with our wealth, to be intentional about giving it, to bless people with it. And Jesus is calling us to do this, and this is maybe the key to understanding what he says. He's calling us to do this because it actually shapes how we view the world. As he says in verse 21 where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What's important to notice here is that this gives us the context for generosity. The point of being generous is not to earn something from God. People sometimes talk this way, as if storing up for yourselves treasures in heaven simply meant a long-term investment plan, deferring your mansion on earth for an even bigger mansion in glory. But that isn't Jesus' point. The goal of generosity, he says, is to break our heart's love of mansions, instead training us to love God. It's to set our hope and our hearts in heaven rather than on earth. Some of you know the story of St. Francis of Assisi. Francis was born a wealthy noble, but one day he's out riding and he saw this poor leper begging by the side of the road and suddenly overcome with Jesus' words about caring for the poor and needy, he staggers out of his carriage and he kneels down and he hugs this leper. And in that moment, he has this vision where the leper's face was transfigured into that of Jesus. And from that day forward, Francis gives away his wealth, seeks to live a life of simplicity, generosity became the saint francis that we talk about today and look we aren't called to the vows of poverty that francis took and instilled in his order of franciscan monks but there's something deeply insightful about the reason he says that they took them in his counsels which were written to the monks that followed him he says this where there is charity and wisdom there is neither fear nor ignorance where there is poverty and joy there is neither greed nor avarice that is to say Francis believes that generosity is not about duty, but rather he believes that generosity somehow actually shapes and changes his heart and his priorities. That charity and giving away resources were for him key tools in our fight against greed and fear. The acts of giving somehow train us to think about the world. And that's why Jesus calls us to storing up for ourselves treasures in heaven, to being generous. What we do with our hands actually shapes our hearts. Being generous actually somehow helps us to feel less greedy. So we are all called to this practice of generosity, right? But that raises all kinds of practical questions. What does that mean for us? Well, let me give a help, what I have found in my life a helpful picture from the Bible and then talk about specific practices, okay? So first, this, this picture. So in the Old Testament there was this thing called a tithe, right? A tithe means a tenth. It involves setting aside a tenth of your income. But actually, in the Old Testament, it's a little more complicated even than that. Um, So first... In, in Moses' law, every Israelite sets aside a tenth of their income to serve the tribe of Levi, all right? This is discussed in Numbers 18, and the Levites were different than the other tribes. They didn't have land, instead, so they worked to maintain the temple and the synagogues and the religious institutions of Israel, and the tithe, that tithe was the one that we're most familiar with today, right? It's what you usually hear people in church talking about, that it's like tithing to the church. But then there was a second tithe, another 10%, that each Israelite was commanded to set aside as well. This is discussed in Deuteronomy 14. And one year in three, that tithe was given to the poor, all of it. So Israelites were required to give to the needy. And the other two years out of three, that tithe was set aside for the people either to go to Jerusalem or if they were too far away to turn it into money. And then that tithe was used basically to throw parties, there would be these huge feasts and festivals that um, in Jerusalem, and that money was pooled, and then everyone was invited, the, the rich and the poor, the Israelite and the sojourner, and if you couldn't make it to Jerusalem, you were actually supposed to throw a party wherever you were. Deuteronomy 14.26 tell, tells the Israelites to take that tithe and spend it For whatever you desire, oxen or sheep or wine or strong drink, whatever your appetite craves, and eat there before the Lord your God and rejoice, you and your whole household, and include your servants, and include the sojourners and the Levites among you. So the Israelites were actually required to share this blessing of enjoyment of their wealth with people too. And there's a couple of things that that picture has always made me reflect on. First, everyone is being commanded to give. A lot of money in that world, right? That's 20% of their annual income between those tithes. And wealthy Israelites were actually expected to give more. That tithe was a baseline for everyone, the floor instead of the ceiling. But at the same time, it also shows us the breadth of ways that we can be generous. God commands that people give to the church and to the poor and to each other and their communities. So how do we apply that? Lots of Christians debate whether the Old Testament command of the tithe is still binding to New Testament Christians. I don't really want to wade into those waters this morning. Let me just note, though, that it is a good calling for us to be mindful of and that Jesus would remind us in the Sermon on the Mount that even if the specifics of that aren't binding on us anymore, that we are always to seek to grow in our hearts to embody even more the ways that the law commands. But at the same time, that can seem really scary and intimidating to many of us. While God promises to be faithful, we can struggle to believe that. I think we can hear something like, well, you know in the Old Testament, God commanded Israelites to give 20% of their incomes, or more, and think, yeah, no, uh-uh, that's not going to happen. <laughs> the last thing I want to do, if that's kind of where your heart is, is leave you feeling condemned. Instead, my invitation to all of us would be to make a plan, a concrete plan to try to give a little bit more somewhere. So maybe, maybe you aren't giving anything, right? So just think about starting. And if 20% seems ridiculous or 10%, try something like this, right? Try, take, take, take 6% of your income, right? 6%. So if you make $3,000 a month, set aside 180 bucks, and then split that up, Basically along the ways that those Old Testament kind of patterns did, right? So give half to the church and then take a third of what's left and give it to charity. Say sponsor a kid with Compassion International, as I know some of you do, right? That works out to almost a third of that figure, $38 a month. Or give it to Rock House Kids or the Rockford Rescue Mission. Give it somewhere. And then take the rest, 2% of your income, and have fun figuring out how to bless people with it. Give a waitress that's clearly having a bad day an extra 20 Or buy groceries for a struggling neighbor and leave it on their doorstep. Or when one of those kids comes by selling candy bars for whatever sports team they're on, right? Buy 50 of them. Well, okay, don't do that because gluttony is a sin as well. But start somewhere like that, right? 6%. And here's the thing. That's actually almost a third of the way to that really big-seeming tithe we just described. But then over time, you just set goals to give a little more. Others of us are faithful in our giving we should also always ask where we can grow. If you're diligent in supporting the church, that's great. But maybe also think about finding a space to, to help a local or global charity. If you do those things, maybe consider what it looks like to throw a party to bless your neighbors. It doesn't actually have to be a party. But for instance, I remember hearing somebody in Lincoln, where Elizabeth and I are from, about someone who for years saved up money and then bought new playground equipment for the, church by it, or for the playground by his house, Right. Think about something like that. I think that's the best way to approach generosity. Not to set some standard that is terrifying for some of us and then easily just met and ignored by others, but for each of us to simply ask from time to time, how can we be giving more? Or as C.S. Lewis puts it, I do not believe one can settle how much one ought to give. I'm afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc. is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. There ought to be things we should like to do and can't, because our charitable expenditures exclude them. So Jesus is calling us to be generous with our money, to set our hands to generosity. And he does this, like we said, because generosity trains us to not let money rule us. However, that isn't all that he has to say. He also addresses our eyes, our eyes. In verses 22 through 23, we find this kind of cryptic saying, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So lots of people offer different interpretations of these verses, and they're certainly open to debate. But here's what I think Jesus is saying, all right? First, to follow it, you just need to be aware that where it says your eyes are unhealthy, that phrase really just says your eyes are bad or evil. And that phrase is used in places like Deuteronomy 15.9 in the Bible and in lots of rabbinic literature to basically just be shorthand for saying you're selfish, you're being selfish, that you're looking at the world in a self-centered way. And so in light of that, here's what I think Jesus is trying to say. If you look at the world rightly, with God at the center and his kingdom as the highest priority, then we can see straight. But if we look at the world selfishly, in terms of what we want and what it offers us, we actually end up blinded. We think we are seeing, but it's really just darkness, which is to say In Matthew 5, for example, when discussing murder and adultery, Jesus sets these high standards. Do you remember that? He says that obedience isn't just about how we act towards people, it's also about how we think. So if you fantasize about a person, for example, you can already be committing adultery, he says, with them in your heart. And in these verses, I think Jesus means to teach us that greed works the same way. That it's not just about our actions. It's not just about what we do. But if we spend our time thinking about money, lusting after stuff, we are already acting out greed in our hearts. There's, this, there's a scene in the, this movie, Fight Club, which is a movie that I am in no way endorsing as a pastor. All right, I feel like you slip into that sometimes when you mention a movie. But I saw it years ago, and it is not safe for the family, so don't go run it for your kids tonight. But there's the scene at the beginning of the movie, um, where you see the main character, um, and he's sitting in this chair, and he has this magazine open in his lap with the centerfold out, and he's just, like, staring at it. And you think you know what the scene is about, but as the camera rotates, you realize that this is an Ikea magazine, and what he's staring at is this living room spread across the centerfold in unabashed lust. And that is just true of, I think, how so many of us experience our world. I was a manager in retail, right? And viewed from a certain angle, the way people shopped was almost disturbing. You would see them just sort of walking through the aisles, brushing their fingers over things, and they would just stop and hold this thing and stare at it at the end of the aisle. Or, or they'd, they'd run their hands over the clothes with this faraway look in their eyes. There were people who would come in to, to the Target that I managed almost every day And they would just like try on 10 different outfits every day and not buy any of them. Or they would want to come back and just have a conversation about a different 60-inch television every day. And I mean, I do, in some sense, that sort of thing. I dream about stuff that I can't have and will never have. I mean, everybody does, right? There wouldn't be game shows like The Price is Right if we didn't do that sort of thing. We talk about the dangers of the internet, but I have totally wasted hours on Amazon.com looking at things I would like to buy. I don't know, adding them to the shopping cart and then being like, no, and taking them out. And then adding them to the shopping cart again, being like, no, and taking them out, right? We all slip into that sort of obsessing in our minds about stuff. And Jesus wants to remind us that we need to watch not just how we act with our money we also need to watch how we think about it. This is one of those interesting places I feel like we can actually fail in two directions. On the one hand, this challenges those of us who are constantly spending our money and thinking about the stuff we can buy. The people who lust after stuff. People throw around words like materialism and consumerism, and some of us are deeply afflicted by those problems. We buy and buy and buy, and then when we're not dreaming, we're just or we're not buying, we're just dreaming about more stuff that we could buy. But at the same time, we can fail in the opposite direction. This also critiques those of us who obsess about keeping our money, about pinching every penny and tracking every dime, because we're still in a sense lusting after money, just lusting after having it. Rather than spending it, we can hoard and hoard and hoard, and when we're not, dream about how we can hoard more. And Jesus's answer is not to do either of those things. Rather, it's to seek to spend less time thinking about money and what it can buy, and more time thinking about God. It's to seek in those moments when we're obsessing over purchases or savings, to instead seek to reflect on his goodness and and faithfulness and generosity to set our hearts on heaven. Again, that doesn't mean that buying things is bad, and it certainly doesn't mean that saving is bad. Those are both good things in proportion, but they can only exist in their right proportion when they exist um, in a context that is centered on God. We need to push our hearts towards him and then let those things fall into their proper places. Ultimately, what Jesus is calling us to in his call to generosity with our hands and contentment with our eyes is something deeper. He wants to set our hearts free from the power of wealth. What Jesus truly wants to address is the condition of our hearts. As he says in verse 21 For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? For Jesus and the way he addresses us, actions are never just external things that we do. They come from something deeper. That greed and materialism are dangerous not because they're just bad things we do. They're dangerous because they indicate our hearts can be set in the wrong place. In verse 24, Jesus says it this way. Nobody can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That's the ultimate question for Jesus. Not what or how much you have, but what you have set your hearts upon. The picture Jesus gives in that verse is a simple one, if you think about it. It's the reason, right, that you don't have two bosses at work. Because if they have different priorities, and Jesus and money are going to have different priorities, if those two bosses have different priorities, you can't actually obey them both. You're going to have to choose in the moment one or the other to follow. That's always going to mean disobeying the other one. And what Jesus wants to call us to then is a question of where our loyalty ultimately lies. Which boss are we taking as our true master? God or stuff? Because in the end, we're going to have to choose. There's this idea we can have about Christianity, that, that people in our world have about Christianity. It sees Christianity as bondage, as being a slave. And it asks, why in the world would anyone want to do that? Why wouldn't you want to be free? And what's interesting is that in a sense, Scripture doesn't disagree with that idea that people say. In this very text, Jesus talks about God being our master. However, where Scripture does disagree is the idea that without God, we're free. All of us serve something. There's something that we think will fulfill us will make us happy, some story that tells us what the good life is, some things that we love and desire more than anything else and that we'll spend our time and energy trying to get. I mean, think, think about stuff, right? There's this story out there in our world of happiness that so many of us believe. It looks like a big house and nice cars and an RV and maybe a boat and a good retirement savings so that you can travel. And Look, you know that story, Right? And the thing is, chasing that story demands a lot of us. It demands long hours at work, including maybe some hours that we might otherwise spend with family and friends. It demands even more hours and even more income keeping up those things as we do get them. Houses take a lot of money and maintenance to keep looking nice, and I hear that boats and RVs do too. Most of all, That story, if we make it our ultimate aim, takes over our whole mental lives. We're worrying about how we fail to meet it and worrying about the ways that we do meet it. So we're never satisfied. And then we get there, maybe, and we get our big house and our nice cars and RV and boat and retirement savings. But while we might like those things, we still aren't satisfied and then our neighbor builds an addition on his house, right, or gets a hot tub or takes up kayaking, and we think, oh, that's what I've been missing. I just need that, too. Or as Ecclesiastes 5.10 puts it, whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. All of that endless work and worry, that is Slavery. And it doesn't just have to be money, right? We can do that with other things too. Some of us spend hours every day in front of the mirror serving the master of physical beauty. Some of us sacrifice our very identities up on the altar of other people's approval. We are all serving some master or another. So what Jesus wants us to recognize is that this world is full of masters but that only one of those masters is actually worthy of our service. That here's the beautiful truth about God as your master. That serving him will be hard and will require sacrifices. That's what serving means. But that God is worth it. He's big enough and worthy enough to make our service noble rather than petty. That he is worthy enough to bring satisfaction, a real measure of contentment and peace in this life, and ultimate satisfaction and glory, and that he is good to us. While from the outside, it looks like we are giving up all kinds of things, those who have surrendered to God confess that they are hardly a loss at all. Or as the Apostle Paul puts it in Philippians 3.8, what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. So let me make, let's make that our ultimate aim this morning, to be mastered by God. To see money and possessions for what they are. Good gifts, even blessings, but not more than that. To discipline ourselves to be generous with them. To guard our eyes and our minds from thinking too highly of them. And to train our hearts towards our Savior and the kingdom that he provides. Let's do all of those things, not out of duty, but with the knowledge that there is a surpassing worth in knowing Christ Jesus that no thing in this world could match. Would you pray with me? Oh God and Father, I just recognize in my own heart how, much, how attached I am to the stuff of this world. I pray that you would be breaking me and breaking each of us of that, of that love, that you would be training us to make you alone our master, to enjoy the good things that you give us with, but not to let them rule over us. Pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.